I said that was the last thing, but there's one more last thing before we jump into the message. And that is, last night I had the um, super pleasure to marry off. You know, I said to somebody this morning, I got a group of pastors that I text every Sunday morning around Columbus just to give them the word of encouragement. And I said, I got to marry my son yesterday. And one of them said, is that legal? But, but, but I did get to marry off. I married off my son yesterday and I got to, you got those pictures? Um, so that is my oldest son and my grandson, little Zach, who was the ring bear, um, who made it about two steps. And then mama hold me. Um, but I had three generations of, of Griffin Hagen men and it was, I fell apart and couldn't even talk at the beginning of the wedding. But you got him flipped to the next one, if you would. You know, and that's my youngest son. He's been playing the guitar here, I guess, since 2011 when he was about 14 or 15. But the, he lives in Dallas, Georgia. And then that's his new bride. So that was really, really, see, I'm getting broke up now. That was, it was a really cool thing. Now, part of that was um, we were supposed to be up there last night till today. And about 4 o'clock, Richard was preaching today. He texted me and said, hey, man, I just tested positive for COVID. And I said, surely you jest, my brother. And he said, no, I doesn't jest. And so um, so we came on back, um, got back about 3.15, uh, 3 o'clock or so this morning. But I'm thrilled to be here because I'm going to do something today. Well, let me, let me start off and, and, and say this, and then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You know, I, I looked back and I thought at this time, this is 20 plus years ago, I really, really needed to talk to my mom and dad. I didn't know what to say, but I just really needed to tell them what had happened that morning um, and the events that led up to that morning. My dad and I, <clears throat> my dad and I were like this. I mean, we worked together every day for about uh, like 12 years probably, but every day, all day long, we worked together. We were thick as thieves, me and my dad. But I knew that when I called them and said I needed to talk to them, that they were not going to want to hear what I had to say to them because no parent wants to feel like they're, they're being betrayed. No parent wants to feel like their heritage is being betrayed. No, no parent wants to feel like their family um, is being betrayed. You know, and for me, because I'm telling you, me and my dad were tight. Um, the last thing that I ever would want to do would be to disappoint him and my mom, and that was on the afternoon of January 17th. 2001, and we'll get back to that in a, in a second. But what we're going to do today, we're going to step away from the book of Acts, although this is all over the book of Acts, we're just not going to be in Acts today, because I'm going to do something that I've really, I, I, I came to realize yesterday that I've never actually shared my testimony with our church. And I think you need to know where, where we're coming from. And so I want to do that today. And I, get, I need to tell you a little bit about our family, and, and so you kind of know where I'm coming from. You know, my mom came from Germany when uh, she was about eight months old, 1936, or early 1937. It was very much at the last minute um, that you could get out, of, if you were Jewish, very much at the last minute that you could get out of Germany. You know, Hitler had come to power. You know, Jewish doctors had lost their licenses. You know, Jewish attorneys had lost their, their licenses. Um, Jewish people that worked for the government were not allowed to work for the government anymore. My grandfather was a farmer, and he had the, sold his produce in this little 
this little store and my grandfather took nothing from nobody and he was walking down the street one day and, a, and they called him a brown shirt. A brown shirt was a, a, a Nazi um, party official. Is walking down the street and my grandfather had, you know, he had a little yellow star on his sleeve that they had to wear and the guy said something to him and my grandfather flipped him off and got taken to jail. <clears throat> and at that time, he, he had one family member who had a little clout still, which ended up, that guy ended up dying in, in uh, Auschwitz, but um, who got him out of jail. And he said, he looked at my granddaddy and he said, you got to go because they're going to kill you and they're going to kill your wife and they're going to kill your two little girls because you can't keep your mouth shut. And so he did. They left. They left with nothing, but they came to the United States early 1937. But all of the rest of our family, and we don't really know how many people, but 25-ish people died in, uh, in Auschwitz and in Theresienstadt, which is kind of in Czechoslovakia, different uh, concentration camps. Meanwhile, my dad, so mama uh, and my, my, that side of the family, they grew up, came to Columbus. He worked in one of the mills. My grandfather did. Um, and so they grew up here. And my dad was born in, in the Bronx and, uh, and grew up there, poor. Grew up there having to fight because he was Jewish, you know, dirty Jew, this and that all the time. And so he, had to, he learned how to fight, ended up boxing. But he, he, uh, when he was finishing high school, he got an appointment to West Point. So he went to West Point. He graduated from West Point and then went to, uh, came to, to Fort Benning to go to jump school. And him and my mom met. And, uh, and they got married. And about six days after they got married, he left and went to Korea uh, for a year and then came back. And so my dad, um, part of that growing up was a constant battle of physical confrontations with, uh, you know, Jew this and and Jew that. And so that's kind of my mom and dad's history. And and so I grew up in in Columbus, but in a pretty religious Jewish home. I was born on, uh, in 1965 on September the 8th and then eight days later. Is custom in, in for a Jewish male. It's a ritual circumcision. And so I had that. It's called a brit milah. It means son of the covenant. And so, <clears throat> excuse me. And so that event kind of signifies for a Jewish male the sort of the entrance into the, the covenant community. And as a Jewish kid, I grew up going to Sunday school every Sunday, at, beginning at four. And Jewish Sunday school is different than what you would see Sunday school in a church. It's a lot more academic, and it's for three hours um, every Sunday. I went to, it was called Hebrew school. I went every Tuesday afternoon after school and every Thursday afternoon after school from four to, uh, from four to six. We learned, like, we learned Hebrew. We learned the Jewish culture. You know, we didn't read or study the Bible, which sounds kind of crazy, but, but we didn't. We learned Hebrew. We learned how to... Um, kind of about all the different holidays, and and I remember every Tuesday and Thursday, because I grew up playing football, and, you know, every Tuesday and every Thursday, at the, there was a break at 5 o'clock. It was from 4 to 6, but there was a little break at 5 o'clock, and, uh, and I would have to go into the bathroom and put on, you know, football pants and a, and a girdle and the under and the undergarment kind of that goes under your pads so that when my dad picked me up at 6, we could fly and get to football practice, and every time... On, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I had to run, you know, extra because I was late to practice. But my parents just were like, Hebrew school trumps football. 
And so that was part of this growing up, you know, and we attended a worship service every Friday night, every Saturday morning. Um, and so it's not like, like sort of we grew up, me and my brother and sister, like with no religion or something. Dude, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every week from about four years old on. You know, and the Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday night and it ends at sundown on Saturday. And, you know, you can't flip a light switch. When the sun goes down on Friday night, you can't flip a light switch because that constitutes work and you can't work on the Sabbath. Um, you know, there's 39 categories of actions that violate the Sabbath. That doesn't mean there's 39 actions that violate the Sabbath. That means there's 39 categories, each category with a hundred or so different things that would violate the Sabbath. None of that's in the Bible, y'all. None of it is in the Bible, but that's the way I grew up. It's man-made rules. What did God say? Honor the Sabbath, right? That's what scripture says, right? Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. But man just jacks it up with all these things. And we grew up, you couldn't do all these things on the, on the Sabbath. You know, most of the worship services were in Hebrew. Now we learned a little bit of Hebrew growing up as kids, but I couldn't, I couldn't converse in it. But most of those worship services were all of the readings or the things that you recite were in Hebrew. So I, for the most part, had no idea what was being said. We kept kosher at home. Say kosher. Kosher. That's a strict adherence to the dietary laws that are in the scripture. Now that's coming from scripture. Now they messed up the reason over time, the reason that you keep kosher. Because the truth is if we all ate the way scripture said, we'd all be way healthier. Right? We'd all be way healthier. But we grew up. You couldn't eat pork. You couldn't eat shellfish. You couldn't eat meat products and milk products together. You can't mix those. We had a separate set of dishes for things that were meat-based and things that were dairy-based. And you couldn't even wash those dishes in the dishwasher at the same time. They were on different sides of our kitchen. Like, all of these rules and, like, and, and, and you know, there's a gajillion of them. All growing up, it's like it's like almost being neurotic that you're going to slip up, you know, and, and eat a ham sandwich by accident, which I used to sneak next door to the people who live next door, and she'd give me a ham sandwich, like all the time. I mean, it's just, it's comical. But all that growing up, like as a Jew, the New Testament and Jesus really were not an issue. And I know that probably sounds weird, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home that probably still sounds weird. But I had zero knowledge of who Jesus was. The New Testament was not even the Bible. The Bible was the Old Testament. Jews don't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. They call it the Bible because that's, that's the Bible. Because the New Testament to somebody that's Jewish is not inspired. It's not scripture. It's just some writing. They don't deny that it exists, but it's just some writing of some um, some different prophets, I guess. And I wasn't, we, we didn't go to this Hebrew school or Sunday school. We didn't go to that. And um, we weren't taught that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. It's not anti-Jesus. It's just not in any part of any conversation. It's just he and the New Testament and salvation even, it's just irrelevant. It's not even on the table for any discussion. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not. It's just not talked about. You know, it's funny. 
that growing up in Columbus, Georgia, would y'all say that we are in the Bible Belt? Never in my life did anyone ever share the gospel with me. Not once. That's not an indictment on me. That's an indictment on the church. Never. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses would try to come up to the front door as we were, you know, as we were, I guess, growing up, you know, but you just got to know my dad. I, oh, my gosh. Like, I would fear for those people when they would come up to the front door. But when they would come up to our door before I got saved, um, even as Susan and I were married, I'm like, all you got to do is tell them you're Jewish and they'll turn around and leave. It's like they think that Jews are, it's too tough of a nut to crack or something. I'm telling you, you want them to leave your door? Of course, now I'm like, come on in and let's talk, baby. So, but then I'm just like telling them I'm Jewish and they hit, you know, and they hit the road. Um, but anyway, nobody ever shared the gospel with me ever. And like, I remember, this is my dad, but like, I remember um, the first game, 1978, junior midget little division of, of uh, Pioneer Colts. And I was playing quarterback, and Lee McBride was the center, if y'all remember Lee that preached here a couple times. Um, and I ran a little sweep around the side, get down, I don't know, 20, 30 yards, got hammered uh, on the sideline, really horrifically broken left arm, bones, both bones were sticking out. It was nasty. And my dad walks down, and he looks down at me, and I can't repeat what he said because that was on a Thursday night, and my bar mitzvah was on Friday. Well, a bar mitzvah is when you're 13 or almost 13, it is really the entrance of a male into that community. And you have to run the Friday night service. You read from the big scrolls, if you've ever seen them. And you run it all and you have a little speech. And then you do it on Saturday morning too. And you do, you kind of, it's a big deal. And my dad looks down with both bones. My, my hand was about right there. And, and he just said some stuff that I can't repeat. You know, and I go to the hospital, and he said, you know what? As I'm laying on the field, he said, you know what? The show must go on. The show must go on. And so I did it. Um, with They had to cut the sleeve off the suit because the cast was, like, from here to there. And I had to stand up there. They call it the Bema. You ever heard of the Bema seat? I'm standing up there with my arm packed in a bucket of ice, hyped up on Vicodin, you know, at 13, trying to do this stuff, but the show must go on. You know, the Pharisees, the show must go on. Um, so we did that. So I had that, um, and, you know, perform. it was a performance, right? I had to, did that performance on, on Saturday. 13 years old, I met my wife when I was 16. She was 14 uh, and a freshman in high school, and, and we met. She was saved when she was 11 years old. But when I, and then when I was a senior at University of Georgia, I asked her to marry me. And we dated that whole time for whatever that is, about six or seven years. And I asked her to marry me when I was a senior in college. But there was a stipulation. That stipulation, you know, she was a Christian. Now, I grew up, and y'all, this is going to be foreign to you too. I'm Jewish. I thought everybody else was Christian. I mean, I guess unless you're a Muslim or a Hindu or something, I just thought everybody else was Christian. I didn't know nothing about no salvation. I, that word wasn't even part of the vocabulary, so I had no clue. If somebody said something about being saved, I don't even know what that means. So I just thought everybody else was a Christian. We never talked about it um, because she wasn't Jewish. I just assumed she was a Christian, which she really was because she got saved um, when she was 11 years old. 
But the stipulation when I asked her to marry me was, you got to convert to Judaism because my parents said, you got to have one, quote, religion in your house and you need to raise your children Jewish. And I respected my parents and so it was probably disrespectful to her, but nonetheless, we were, you know, madly in love as we still are today. Um, and she said, okay, but this a Jewish conversion, there's no heart in it. Would you say that's true to say it that way? There's not a heart. She went through a year-long class and, like, had to take a test at the end. Um, and the test was, like, before, it was in Atlanta with these, was it about 12 men? It's like 12 old Jewish men that asked her questions. And she had to answer. The, and if you know Susan, she's not in all that. You know, but they asked her these questions. And they weren't questions like, has your heart changed? They were questions like, tell me about this holiday and tell me about this holiday. It was like this academic thing. And so she she passes the test and she's Jewish and 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 because she learned about the holidays or whatever. And so we start, we get married, we start raising our kids the same way that I was raised. Strict sense of right and wrong. Absolute, um, you know, my dad instilled a strict sense of right and wrong. And we started doing the same thing with our kids. And we went to the synagogue for holidays and stuff. But um, I think we were members of that synagogue in Columbus. It was on, it's on Winton Road. Now it's a church. Um, but we were probably a member because my parents, probably for their benefit, I guess, um, the, over time, the importance that that had in, in my life for sure, kind of started to wane. Like I didn't know really, I never, never was an atheist for sure, but I, I never even considered this a personal relationship with God that had nothing to do with it, but I never denied his existence, never thought that he didn't care. It just Never, I just never thought about the role that the Lord would play in somebody's life. And as time passed, this whole Judaism thing, just it just felt started feeling like something is missing. And I didn't know what it was, but there was this void. Did you, you ever feel like growing up like there's this void in, in your life and you're trying to fill it with everything but ultimately, but what it needs to be filled with? And so I just had this void. And, and I... I you know, Zach, our first child was born in 1992, and then Will was born in 95. And we're just raising those kids the best way that we knew how. We're trying to live, you know, whatever living right means and raising them right. And they started going to Sunday school and stuff when they were uh, little, and they were four years old, just the same way that, that I had. And I wasn't thinking about any of this religion stuff. But then in January of 2000, and I don't know if it had something to do with Y2K. Most of y'all too young to know what Y2K is. But, but when, when the calendar went from December 31st, 1999 to January 1st, 2000, if, if, if you remember that kind of as a teenager, as an adult, like everybody, it's like the world's coming to an end and all this stuff. And I guess maybe it made me think. And, and so in January of 2000, I, I said to myself, I said, self, I want to know what the truth is. I want to figure out what in my head and in my heart what, what is true. I wanted to believe because I believed, not because this person or that person told me what to believe, but because I believed. Does that make sense? I didn't want to, of course, nobody Christian ever shared the gospel with me, but all the other stuff, I just wanted to believe. And I told Susan, I said, I don't know what's going to happen over the next however long. I said, but whatever it is, it's going to be true, absolutely true. And I said, I may end up being a monk or an atheist. 
or a or a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or a like whatever. But whatever it is, is going to be true. Because y'all, if something's true, everything else that is in contradiction to that is untrue. And you can play the political correct game and say what's true for you is true and what's true for me is true. But that is an absolute lie from hell. You love when I say that, don't you? It is. Because A cannot equal negative A at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Because ultimately Jesus either came out of the grave alive or he didn't. It either happened or it didn't. And your unbelief, your denial in that does not change history. You're just not that important. It either happened or it didn't. I'm getting ahead of myself, but but I said the lo- I told her I said the logical place to start is with the Bible. I never read the Bible. Grew up in the synagogue. Think about the nonsense in this. Five days a week, I never read the Bible. My mom and dad never read the Bible. My mom and dad never really picked a Bible up, and they were super involved in the synagogue. But then they never picked a Bible up until. I guess it was probably about 2001, 2007 or 8 when mama called me about Genesis. Every time my parents would call me after this and I'd answer the phone, Susan would cringe because she's like, oh, my God, I don't know what he is going to say to them. But, <laughs> but they were good conversations. Anyway, so I pick up a Bible, this book that I had never read, um, and, and I, off on this quest for truth. That was what the quest was for, was for truth. And I didn't know where to start. I never read the Bible. So I said, I think I probably ought to start with page one because it's page one. So I started with, with page one. And y'all, page one, what are the first words of the Bible? In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God. Don't use the Bible as a proof that God exists. The Bible assumes God exists from the beginning. In the beginning, God. And so I started reading Genesis. And I just kept reading every night. And I was obsessed with it. And she never said a word to me. And I didn't know that she and her whole family are praying about it. But I didn't know any of that stuff was going on. I just sit over there with this huge Bible like it's this big that, that our, my parents gave me, me and Susan, when we got married. They never read it, but they gave us one when we got married. And it's just the Old Testament, right? And I'd sit over there with that Bible on the ottoman every night. Started at page one and I would just read. And I ended up getting a, a uh, I think it was an NIV. Because the Bible that they gave us was super hard. You think the King James is hard to read? On steroids is, a, is the Jewish Publication Society Old Testament that we had. And so I got this other Bible. Well, that other Bible that I got, I had to get from the mustard seed. Anybody remember the mustard seed? Had to get the mustard seed. It was right over there by Office Depot. And I was petrified to walk in that Christian bookstore because if my dad saw me going in that Christian bookstore, he'd take it to the bank that that boxing stuff would come out. And so I snuck, I parked in front of Office Depot and snuck into the mustard seed because I wanted to get a translation that I could read. So I ended up, I got it and I got home and I would read that one. But if I, I thought you people were trying to coerce me and trick me. And so whenever I'd run into something in that NIV or whatever it was that was, that I decided was controversial, I'd go over to the other Bible that mom and daddy gave me and I'd check to see if you people are tricking me into believing something. So it was every night, man, every night. It would be like when she would go to bed and when the kids would go to bed and then she would go to bed and I'd sit there for, man, I don't know, three, four hours every night just reading, kind of reading both of those Bibles sort of at the same time. And I was trying to be objective, which is funny, but I don't know if I was really trying to be objective as I was trying to prove 
that y'all, you people are all wrong, that you're all deceived, and that Jesus, just another whatever, a uh, prophet in the in New Testament times or something, I don't know. Um, but I spent 11 months. Ultimately, I spent about 11 months from the end of January or so to the, to almost 12 months reading those Bibles cover to cover. And I finished the, the Old Testament um, in about eight, about nine months. And uh, at the end of the Old Testament, I thought there is absolutely no way that it could end like that. It's like reading a novel and not, and there's no conclusion. There's no last chapter. And I'm like, that just can't be. But then, and I had that, you know, that New Testament was, you know, that, that other Bible had the New Testament in it. And I thought, I ain't reading that. Like Jewish people don't read that. I'm not about to read that. It was, I don't know, Susan may remember, but I think I wrestled with that for about a week. Like, I'm not about to read that. My daddy will whoop my butt. There ain't no way I'm going to read that. You know, it's funny. I'm a 36-at-the-time-year-old man talking about my daddy whooping my tail. But anyway, I decided to go on and read that, that New Testament. And I couldn't really believe that I was going to do that. But I thought, if it's fake, I figured out I'm a smart guy. You know, I'll figure out if you people are trying to trick me. And so I started reading it. And there was one passage that kept sticking in my mind, one passage from the Old Testament. And it was from Jeremiah chapter 31. And this is about 800 years or so before Christ is born. And Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, they broke the covenant, the people did, but God says, but I was a husband to them, but they broke the covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law inside of them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, and each other, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And I want to tell you some truths because all this stuff happened over this year or so. And these, there's these truths that just kept coming to my mind as I'm reading, really as I'm reading the New Testament. Truths about who I am, about the nature, who I am and who you are. You know, truths about the nature of man. And I thought I was a pretty good guy. I acted pretty right because my dad had popped me if I didn't. You know, I bet you every one of y'all at some point in your growing up, you're like, like I, I'm acting okay. If there's a heaven, this is my thoughts. If there's a heaven, I'll, I'll be there. I never thought any deeper th uh, about it than that. I act pretty good. I'm not a thief. I ain't never killed nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm just probably okay. Never been arrested. Never been convicted. But y'all were supposed to laugh because that was kind of funny. I thought I was basically good. If somebody had asked me, do you think people are basically good or bad? I would have said basically good, of course. People are good. People are good. But then when you read scripture, that ain't what it says, y'all. I mean, that ain't what, and I'm, not, and I'm not talking about just, I'm not talking about Paul or Peter. I'm talking about Moses. I'm talking about David. You know, I want to read you a couple of passages that just kind of kept popping in my mind as I'm thinking that I'm okay or basically good. You know, Genesis 6, 5 says that, Every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart 
is only evil all of the time. That don't mean we're basically good. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things. Psalm 51, and this is, this is when, when the prophet Nathan comes to David after David had committed adultery, potentially raped Bathsheba, which happened after he's, you know, being the peeping Tom looking down over off his balcony at her down there sunbathing or whatever, and then has her husband killed, right? And Nathan comes and calls David uh, to the table, and David writes this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. You ever feel like your sin is always before you? I do. Verse 4, he says, against you, and he's talking to God now, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge and then he says, surely I was sinful at birth. Surely I was sinful at birth. We're not born good, y'all. We're not born neutral. We're born sinful. That doesn't mean every baby comes out and is an axe murderer. But our hearts are depraved. They just are. And it's all because of what happened in the garden. And so he says, he goes on, he says, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And Paul, who's quoting Psalm 14 and I think Psalm 53 in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. That's black and white. That doesn't mean this half of the room is okay and this half of the room is not. No, you're all jacked up. And I could sweep all the way around this stage and that includes me. None are righteous. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I'm learning or I'm thinking, I'm thinking about all this scripture and I thought I'm basically good, but the Bible is telling me that I'm not, you know? Dude, that's kind of world rocking. That kind of messes up your brain a little bit. So I learned these truths about who man is and then I learned these truths about faith because I grew up, thinking you had to do, you had to do, you had to, which is, we should do, and we should act right, and we should feed the hungry, and we should be kind to one another. Of course we should. But I grew up thinking that if heaven existed and I did enough good stuff, then I'd be okay. And then I read Genesis 15, and this is Abraham whining about they don't have any children. I don't know if I should say Abraham was whining. You know what? Abraham was whining. That's what he was doing. And he says... He says to God, he's talking to God. He says, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And Abraham ain't a young guy at this time. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse four says, God says, this man ain't gonna be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought, the Lord brought Abraham outside and he says, look up, dude. He says, look up, count the stars if you can. He says, uh, so shall your offspring be. And then in verse 6, it says that, and he, he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it as righteousness. You know what that means? That's Abraham getting saved. Did he get saved because he did something? Say, no, he did not. He believed the Lord. And I remember reading that, 
And I don't know if I asked Susan something because she was super chill and quiet this whole year-long thing. But I just remember thinking, man, Abraham is righteous. And I wouldn't have used the word saved because I didn't know that word. But like I said, Abraham is like okay with God, but he didn't do anything. He's okay with God because he, he believed. And I thought, that is crazy. And I took, but that was probably about February because that was in Genesis. I, get, I think I kind of put that little verse in my pocket and I said, I, I got to think about that one. And then I read Isaiah 53. You want to read the gospel? Read Isaiah 53. Isaiah, listen to this. And this again, this is Isaiah writing about 840 years before Christ. And he says in verse 3, and he's describing somebody, right? You know, Jews avoid Isaiah 53, by the way. It says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. We held him in low esteem. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the, for the transgressors. Are you kidding me? Like, who is, like, how can you miss that? They knew the Old Testament. When Jesus is walking the dusty roads of Israel, they knew Isaiah 53. They did. I didn't, but they did. I had never read it until... That probably was about July, June or July of, of 2000. What's well, describing somebody? It's describing an event. You know, I, I think I started the New Testament maybe in September probably. Probably. Matthew. It ain't happenstance that Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. It's a perfect bridge, Matthew's gospel. It's a perfect bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. Obviously, it's written the principles throughout time for everybody. But each of the Gospels really is written to in that time primarily to a different audience. There's a lot more prophecy fulfilled in Matthew. Well, why is that? Because the Jews knew the prophecy. The Jews knew Isaiah 53. There's a lot more prophecy fulfilled. There's a lot more parables parabolic teaching because that's the way they learned. In their culture, that's the way they learned. I'm the geek that could spend six months preaching the genealogy in Matthew. Well, why is that? Because the genealogy in Matthew proves that Jesus Christ is a legal heir to King David's throne. Well, the Jews knew that the, the Messiah had to come through David's line. Well, that's what the genealogy does. And you know who's in the genealogy? You know, think about it. We were just talking about who you say I am. And I said, you ever felt like a dirt bag? Hookers in his genealogy. Pagans in his genealogy. The most wicked kings ever in Israel 
in his genealogy. Broken, messed up people are in the genealogy of the guy that we worship every Sunday. What an image that is. He uses broken people. God uses broken people to accomplish what he determined was going to be accomplished before the foundation of the world, before time even existed, before time, matter, and space existed, he knew the genealogy of his son. Well, Matthew gives it to us, and I'm the guy, like, I was digging into it. And all the little letters, y'all, in the New Testament, when you see a little letter above a verse, don't just ignore that. It's driving you back somewhere in the Old Testament. You ain't on no timeline. Go back and read where that's referring you. The richness of scripture, it'll just explode if you'll do that. And you'll see where all, and you, it's almost like you, you step into the culture when you can do that. Because two-thirds of the New Testament is allusions or direct quotes from the Old Testament. So when you hear people say, we go to a New Testament church, we don't read the Old Testament. Well, how are you reading the Bible if you're not reading? Two-thirds of the New Testament is, is referring to the Old Testament. You know, and then I've I get, to, I get to Romans, and like Romans is this courtroom kind of scene, and Paul is proving all this stuff, and there was tons of truths in Romans. You know, so I get these, these passages about the nature of man, and, and, I, and I felt like that if these passages about me are basically, about me being basically bad and not basically good or true, then it's not fair. Like, if I don't have a chance, then what's, a, what's the point of all the Old Testament rules and regs? What's the point of all of that, that Old Testament law? If that's the way I'm supposed to live, to obey all the commandments that are in Scripture, anybody know how many commandments are in the Old Testament Scripture? It ain't 10. What? 613. Somebody give Lonnie an apple. There's 613 commandments. And if I got to do that... It's, and if I don't do it, it's not fair. Genesis 6 says that every thought, every inclination of my heart is depraved. And so if that's the case, that's stopping me from being able to fulfill the 613 commandments. And so, God, you're going to send me to hell for that when you wired me up and I can't do it? That's just not fair. That's what I thought. You ever, you ever feel that way? The wrongs of people feel that way. Millions of people feel that way. So I said to myself, self, I'm done. The law's jacked up. Like, I, I just can't do this. So now I'm thinking that the Old Testament is bad and the law is bad. And then I read Romans 7, verse 7. And Paul says, is the law sinful? You know, in the Romans, Paul a lot of times asks a question and then answers a question. He asks a question, this mythical um, person in the courtroom responds to the question. So he says, is the law sinful? Certainly not, he says. But he says, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Big picture purpose of that Old Testament law is to tell you, you are jacked up. And you cannot save yourself. And you will never keep all 613 laws. You're never going to do it. You know, it just points us to an understanding of our need. I never thought, no one is getting to the foot of this cross until they understand that they need to be there. If you don't have a need, if, you're not, if you don't acknowledge your sinfulness, 
you would look at the bumper sticker like I did. Jesus saves from what? I don't need saving. What? What? I'm good. I'm good. If that's true for you, I'm happy for you, right? But that's not true for me. You know, the law allows us to see just how weak the man or woman in the mirror is. It points me and you to this desperate need for a Savior. And he goes on a little, a little more in chapter 7, and he describes this struggle taking place inside. In verse 15, he says, and this is just so typical Paul's writings, he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. That's a tongue twister. Y'all get that? He says, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. And so you can hear this anguish in Paul's words. Like, I want to do good but I'm just so messed up that I can't. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Y'all, so if I'm in need and I, if I'm lost, how is it that I get found? That's what I'm thinking. If I'm messed up and I'm lost, how do I get found? If I'm broken, how do I get fixed? So I thought I got to be better. I got to do better stuff. I got to act better. I got to feed more hungry people. I got to do something. I got to figure out how to meet the bar. Because what's the bar? 613 laws is the bar. Jesus didn't move the bar down, y'all. If anything, he moved the bar up. We don't move the bar down so that we can then reach the bar. Okay, so now I realize that I can't keep all these rules, and if the ticket to heaven is keeping all the rules, then I must be going to hell. I probably, y'all are probably thinking, Dude has lost his mind. But it's what I thought. Because in life, there's consequences. That's the way life works. You know, it's cause and effect. And if I don't act right, that's my actions. Then the consequences of me not acting right, I'm, I'm going to hell. We get what we deserve, right? That's the way the world works. You get the divine law of reciprocity. You get what you deserve. We do something that mama didn't tell us to do, we probably get popped. I mean, it's just the way it is. If we break the law, if we steal something, if we kill somebody, we're probably going to jail because we get what we deserve because a penalty's got to get paid. If, 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 if the law's broken, there has to be a payment for the penalty. That's a massive principle in Scripture. A penalty has got to get paid. Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This is verse 22 now. This righteousness is given through faith. What? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. First time I read that, I thought, well, then why even try? I mean, if, I'm, if I can't do it, I can't do it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not the end of the sentence, though. For all, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And I thought, man, I went back and I started and read that. I finished the New Testament, right? But I went back and I read the Gospels. 
and I read this, all these accounts of Jesus and his words, and, and I read Acts, and then I get to Acts chapter 2, and I read Peter's sermon in Pente at Pentecost, and there's not a bunch of theology in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, dead guys walking. And I know y'all hear me say that all the time, but don't let that be, become cliche. Don't let it become cliche, because the gospel rises and falls on an empty tomb. It rises and falls. On, and you know the truth is, because y'all, I dug into the resurrection. I'm investigating everything. Because why? Because y'all trying to trick me. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. That grave wasn't. Nobody denies the grave is empty. Very few people deny Jesus was a real man. And, and almost nobody denies that the grave was empty. They denied the manner in which the grave became empty. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, y'all stole the body. Like y'all, like y'all stole the body. Like that's what happened. Or he didn't really die. He's off living in Spain with Mary because you know him and Mary got married and then they moved off into Spain because he really didn't die on the cross. But, and that's the dumb stuff that I'm thinking. But then I started studying it and learning and reading sources even, uh, not even Christian people. Christian people too. But were the Roman soldiers that carried out executions good or bad at their job? They beat him. They've done it a million times. They beat him and scourged him and flogged him and whipped him. They knew how to do it just to keep you alive for a little bit. You know, he is beaten and scourged hundreds of times and then nailed on that cross and then stabbed in the side with a spear. You don't survive that. Like, you don't survive physically that. Then you look at evidence. All of his guys go to their death, except probably John. They go to their death over the empty tomb. They go to their death over the fact that a, that a dead guy walks out of a tomb alive. Nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. Nobody does that, right? Nobody does it. You could be deceived and think that, that somebody told me that he came out of the grave alive and you could believe it and maybe you go to your death, but nobody goes to their death for something they know to be false. And all of those guys were witnesses. They saw it happen. They saw it happen. What did Paul, the, the event with the beggar in Acts that we talked about last week, Paul and John are testifying before King Agrippa, and Agrippa's laying it on them. And what do they say? Look, man, I don't know about all that. All I can tell you is what I saw. All I can tell you is what I saw and what I experienced. You got to hammer me for it. You got to hammer me for it because that's all. That's, I can only tell you what happened. I can only tell you what happened. And so during that 13 months, y'all, I started having these thoughts and feelings that I never dreamed in a million years that I would have because y'all, you people trying to coerce me. And the only way I can kind of reconcile it is that there was this gradual, it's just the way I personally am wired. And everybody's wired differently, but I had to believe in my head that every single word was true. And if I could prove that one bit of it was false, the whole thing just collapsed. That's just the way my brain is wired. And so I started thinking, I had this build up in my head 
that I did, I kind of, I do believe it. Like, I, I think I do really believe it. This was a struggle for a, for a while. Um, but that head, that head, that head stuff moved down a little bit. And, and it culminated in a super passionate conviction in my heart. And I was blown away because I'm like, there's no way I believe this. There ain't no nice little Jewish boy going to believe nothing about no Jesus. That's the struggle going back. And, and you know what? Y'all, that is true for your friends and family. Take, they're not Jewish. There is a struggle and a fight internally against the gospel because the world is hammering you with it every single day. They attack the scripture. Turn the history channel off. You can't trust the Bible. Well, why do you think that, that the devil is doing that? Because it's God's word. It's the primary way that he communicates with us today is in his word. And if the world can turn his word off and say it's all false, then he's kind of got a little notch in his belt. So I ultimately, I was totally convinced of the historical accuracy of every single word and the inerrancy of, of every single word in the scripture, of the infallibility of every single word in, the, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Y'all, knowing the truth is more than just knowing a set of facts. It's more than taking a multiple choice test. You know, when my brother's middle daughter got saved about six or seven years ago, he said to her, before you do anything rash, I think you need to talk to somebody. And I'm like, bro, it's not a multiple choice test. Like her heart just, she's a new creation. You can't undo a new creation. It's not, she should have chosen B, but she chose C. But that's the understanding or, or the, the, the lack of understanding that, that people have. So you can't be convinced of the truth by by some persuasive coercion or shrewdly designed arguments. The truth can only be known if you want to know the truth. The truth can only be known if you, if you want to know it and you want to love it because it's true. Not because somebody told you that it was true. People don't argue with conclusions they come to on their own. You don't argue with yourself like that. And you can't push a rope. And you can't be... If this word is true, stop beating people over the head with it and get them to dig into it. You know, somebody said to me a, a couple of weeks ago, hey, I've got a friend that is, um, that, that is, that is open to Christianity and um, she wants to know if there's a verse that would help her. It's bigger than that, y'all. It's bigger. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. Get in relationship with people and sit down and have a conversation if it's true, it'll hold up to every bit of scrutiny you could ever put on it. You could stomp it. You could burn it. You could do whatever you want. If it's true, it'll stand up to it. That, the Lord changed that in me a little bit because I'm like, oh, my God, i got to convince these people. Well, no, I don't. I just got to be in a relationship with them, show them the love of Christ, and have conversations with them and lead them. Like it's a leadership issue. Lead them to the cross. Lead them to the veracity and the truthfulness and the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture because it's true. If it's true, it'll stand up to all that. And so on this dark, I'm going to call the worship team back up too, y'all. On this dark morning in the middle of January, on January 17th of 2001, it was 5.36 o'clock in the morning, and I'm driving to work by myself, pouring down rain, I was at the end of the runway, the Columbus Airport runway, right in front of Terrace Point subdivision. I remember the, I could take you to the spot 
right now where that happened. And it all just like came crashing down. I'm like, I believe it all. Like, like I believe it all. My heart was about to blow out of my chest. Like I believe it all. He fixed me and I cried out, save me. Like out loud in my truck, like a crazy person. Because I was thinking about Susan and I was thinking about the kids and I was thinking about my parents and I'm thinking about, oh my gosh, all of this stuff in the Old Testament comes to fulfillment in the New Testament. Like it's all true. Every bit of it's true. You can't read Isaiah 53 and try to act like it wasn't pointing to Jesus. That's nonsense. All of it is pointing to him from page one. It is all pointing to Christ. You've heard this term, the scarlet thread. There is a scarlet thread woven through every single bit of scripture that leads to, to Jesus. And that morning, he just saved me, like in my truck. And I got to work and I called Susan. I'm like, you are not even going to believe what happened. And I told her, I, I, don't, I, don't, I probably should have waited till nine o'clock to call her, but I called her as soon as I got to, to, to work. Because I said, he really died. And he really, and he really walked out of the grave alive. And he really died on that cross to pay for my sins. And I remember thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Like grace makes no sense to the world. Because the world says, you get what you what? You get what you deserve. Grace says otherwise, y'all. If I got what I deserved, he'd have done thumped me off the planet a long time ago. So that idea of grace, and it, and it's not a, grace is not a, a, just a New Testament concept. Ask King David, the peeping Tom adulterous murderer, if God had grace. A thousand years before Christ is when that was. So, All of that, I don't know the word, soul searching, whatever you would call it that year, it culminated in a monumental change of heart that morning. It was a heart thing. It started here, because that's just how I'm wired up, but it landed here. And when Paul says you're a new creation, by God, you're a new creation. When he breathes life, when, when Jesus breathes life into you, you ain't the same. Now, you may be just a little bit different, but you're different somehow. And as he grows you, you become more and more different because you're spiritually growing. And the Holy Spirit is then living inside of you. So this newness was, it was like unexplainable. You know, I read in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It says the old has what? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. If the old has never passed away for you, somebody tell me what the date is. It's August 15th, right? I should know my son's wedding yesterday. August 15th. Let it be your January 17th, because that was mine. Let the old pass away. If you're watching online, don't go to sleep tonight without considering that offer. And the devil is going to tell you you're a drug addict. And the devil's going to tell you you're an alcoholic. And the devil's going to tell you you're a porn addict. And the devil's going to tell you that you're a terrible husband, that you're a terrible wife, 
that you lie and you cheat and you steal, but Jesus tells you otherwise, y'all. He does. He does. And, and again, man, it's not a complicated form. I'm in with this. You repent, you turn away from your sin and you turn towards him and you believe what happened outside those city gates in Jerusalem. He died on that cross to take care of it. Walked out of the grave alive. You repent, you confess, you believe in your heart. And I believe you got to say, save me. Whether you say it in your mind or you scream it out in the truck like I did. Ask him to save you. He will never forsake you. Throughout scripture, in the worst of times, he will never forsake you. Lord, if anybody is here or watching or listening, sorry, and they have this desire, they got a void in their life and they're trying to fill it with everything but you, Lord, let today be the day that they just say this. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it the best I can. And I don't just turn away from it. I turn towards you. My eyes move away from the filth and move towards you. Lord, let him just repeat these words. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you died on the cross to take care of my sin. And even though that doesn't make any sense to me, and even though the devil tells me I don't deserve it, you tell me I am. You tell me that I need to listen to you because I am who you say I am. I'm not who the devil says I am. And then we, and then, and just let them, Lord, let them believe in their heart that you walked out of that grave alive. Cry out to you to save me. Because we trust and we know that you will. And Lord, I lift every single person that fits in that bucket today. I lift them up to you and their families and their children. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, somebody in our prayer corner back there, and I know I went on today. Um, but I know somebody needed to hear that. I needed to hear it. Um, but our, so we've got our prayer corner back there. We'd love to pray with you. Whether you just got saved or not, whether you just need a, some loving, they're back there. I'll turn it back over to you all. <laughs>